Okay, so over the course of this retreat so far, we've mostly been cultivating the wisdom aspect of the Buddha's teaching. So we've been focused on developing a strong foundation of sati and samadhi so that we can see clearly what's happening in the body, the heart, and the mind. And that, in turn, supports transformative insights to arise. So in the instructions that I've been giving so far, I've been emphasizing the non-reactive aspect of mindfulness, that capacity to stay present, to stay steady with whatever arises, whether it's experienced as pleasant, as unpleasant, or as neutral. And just to be clear, the point of doing that is not to try and somehow make ourselves into an inert lump of stone, but to help make us help us to make a more aware, conscious and skillful response to those experiences. So instead of just reacting out of knee jerk habit or old psychological patterns, we can make a more informed choice. But for all of us there will be times, both on retreat and in our everyday lives, where we have to navigate some very challenging situations, situations of intense physical or emotional pain, even anguish. And at those times, even though we might do our best to meet what's happening without getting overwhelmed, the mindfulness and wisdom might not be strong enough to meet the intensity of the situation that we're facing. So one aspect of the Buddha's teachings that I appreciate more and more is that he offered us a variety of approaches, a variety of meditation methods, including that whole set of the practices known as the four Brahma-Vihara. And I think so far I've just mentioned them in passing, but most of you are familiar with them as the heart qualities of kindness or metta, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity and these are skillful qualities of heart and mind that we can develop through specific meditation techniques and together they provide us with a very powerful set of tools that can help us to meet those more intense ups and downs of life so it's these heart qualities that I'll be exploring a little tonight So first, just a bit of context about how they fit with our insight practice. So in the later Buddhist tradition, this whole path is sometimes spoken of in terms of a metaphor, the metaphor of the two wings to awakening. And those two wings are wisdom and compassion. And one reason I like that simple metaphor is that we can understand very directly that we need both wings to be equally well developed if we're going to metaphorically fly. So wisdom is the ability to see clearly, to develop insight. And that's what we've been focusing on so far during this retreat. Compassion is the willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet that suffering with kindness, and when possible, to help it release. Now, perhaps because we are in the insight tradition, 
the wisdom wing of the practice generally seems to get a lot more emphasis and not so much attention has been paid on the compassion wing. So tonight I'd like to focus a bit more on that compassion wing in the service of helping us find that balance. And we can use that metaphor of the two wings to look at our own practice too and just to see if perhaps we do have a bias more to one side than the other. And in the bigger picture of our practice over the years, it can be helpful occasionally to check how is that balance between wisdom and compassion. And in my own practice, there's been phases where, with hindsight, I eventually recognize that one or the other of these two wings had got a bit too far ahead of the other one. And the gap between them was uncomfortable, unsettling, discouraging, until I realized what had happened, and then I could turn to the other wing to help come back to balance. So, because we're in the insight tradition, probably most of the imbalance in people that I meet is towards the wisdom wing, at the expense of the compassion wing. And so when we're developing insight, at first our insights are on a more psychological level. And we start to recognize perhaps our personal habit patterns, our psychologies, our deep-rooted childhood and family conditioning. And as we start to recognize those more clearly because of our insight practice, it can be quite discouraging because it can feel like all of our so-called defilements, to use a traditional term, are suddenly revealed to us in extra high definition. And it's pretty disconcerting, which is why there's that old joke that self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. So we can know that phase of the practice, perhaps, where everything seems to be in our face. But then as we learn how to metabolize and integrate those, and as the practice deepens, we move from these more psychological insights and start to see more clearly into what are known as the three universal characteristics. And I just touched into those briefly the other day. So the Buddha recognized that all experience is changing, impermanent, anicca. And because of that constant changing and impermanence, it's unreliable, unsatisfactory, dukkha. And because also of that impermanence, there's no permanent, stable self to whom all this is happening. Anatta. And in the beginning, experiencing these three characteristics more clearly can be quite unsettling, even at times painful, because we're challenged to let go of some pretty deeply held beliefs, in fact delusions, about who we are and how the world is. And so if we are in that terrain of things feeling new and unfamiliar and challenging, we might need to consciously turn to the compassion wing for a while 
to develop that more resilient heart and mind, one that can face into these insights with some degree of balance. So that's just a couple of ways that the wisdom wing can get ahead of the compassion wing. On the other hand, there can also be times when the compassion wing gets too far ahead of the wisdom wing. So for example, those times when we start to connect more deeply with the truth of dukkha, stress, distress, suffering, and we can start to feel our own and others' pain so intensely that it becomes overwhelming and we can fall into deep grief. And we don't have to look very far to find this dukkha. So thanks to modern technology, all the misery of the entire world is available to us in our own homes. And that's on top of the dukkha that we're already experiencing in ourselves and in our families and in our communities. So it's not surprising that there might be times when we descend into despair. And at these times, we might need to consciously turn to the wisdom wing again to tune in to those three universal characteristics and to remind ourselves of impermanence, of change, that even dukkha comes and goes, ebbs and flows, and none of it is personal or our fault. And the more we can orient to those characteristics, it becomes possible to taste moments of deep freedom, even in the midst of intense difficulty. So bringing awareness to each of these two wings of wisdom and compassion and learning how to balance them is part of the art of this practice. So compassion then is the willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet it with kindness and where possible to help it release. So the Pali word Karuna is the one that's usually translated as compassion. And in English, the word compassion means feeling with. So it's the heart that vibrates in response to our own or another's pain. And just one caveat. In the Buddhist understanding, it's not simply about empathy. So compassion also contains this wish to free ourselves and others from suffering. And it's that orientation that helps prevent us from empathy burnout. Even so, compassion is not, for most people, the usual way that we relate to dukkha. For many of us, it's totally counterintuitive to turn towards suffering rather than away from it. And probably many of us came to this practice, this path, originally because we wanted to get away from suffering. And now suddenly we're being told to turn towards it. We might think, that's not what I signed up for. I came here to get away from suffering. Suffering hurts. Why would I want to get closer to it? So one reason I alluded to the other night just the truth that inevitably there will be times in life when pain or suffering cannot be got away from, when it's inescapable. So the more that we can train in relatively small difficulties now, 
we can build that compassion muscle before we really need it. So one analogy for this turning towards suffering, it's a bit like swimming in the sea when one of those monster waves appears on the horizon. And usually our instinct is to try and turn and swim away from it or run away from it. But if we do that, we often end up getting dumped. So it's better to turn towards the wave and at just the right moment dive underneath it. It will definitely be turbulent and it will be rough, but usually we come out the other side in much better shape than if we've been slammed into the sand. So with that analogy, you might get a sense that it definitely takes courage to turn towards suffering. And it takes presence of mind, mindfulness. But if we can face into our suffering instead of running from it, with practice, our capacity to be with it gets stronger and stronger. And it definitely does take practice. So we're fortunate that As with all of the Buddha's teachings, this is a quality that can be cultivated. And this was quite a revelation for me because before I came into contact with these teachings, I I used to think that people were just born kind or born compassionate. And I myself just wasn't. And so it was very inspiring and freeing to realize that there were practices that I could actually do to train in the development of compassion. So, compassion is the second of these four Brahma-Vihara practices. And just to locate it in that context, most of you are probably most familiar with the first of these four Brahma-Viharas, which is metta or kindness. So just to check, has anybody here never done any metta or loving-kindness practice? Okay, so you all have some some familiarity with that. So just like the four establishments of mindfulness, the four Brahma-Viharas are a progressive path of practice. And we usually start by training in metta, kindness, friendliness, goodwill because it's the foundation that the other three qualities grow from. So once we've developed a strong base of kindness, of metta, we can turn that kindness to what's difficult. We can turn it towards pain, stress, distress, dukkha, and it naturally flowers as compassion. So the way that compassion is traditionally practiced is similar to how we do metta, that traditional method of silently reciting phrases that evoke compassion and then offering that compassion to different categories of people, starting with where compassion comes most easily and then gradually expanding and extending to include more and more challenging types of people. So metta is the foundation that compassion rests on. And this relationship between the Brahma-Vihara and the other qualities is expressed beautifully in a short verse from the Tibetan tradition by Longchen Rabjampa, who was a 14th century Tibetan Buddhist monk. 
And he said, out of the soil of friendliness, or metta, grows a beautiful bloom of compassion, karuna, watered with tears of joy, mudita, under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity, upeka. So metta is the soil from which the other heart qualities grow and develop. And seeing compassion as a beautiful bloom is inspiring. But sadly, in mainstream society, compassion generally, I don't think, is seen as a beautiful bloom. It's generally not that highly valued. And if we look at the state of the world we're in now, it sometimes feels like we're in the midst of an epidemic of non-compassion. So perhaps we're reaping the results of this non-compassion on a society-wide scale. And perhaps because of mainstream society's tendency towards perfectionism and competitiveness and individualism and idealism, for many of us, just the idea, just the idea of cultivating compassion can seem quite foreign or even threatening. So I want to normalize some of those challenges to help us stay out of the terrain of self-judgment if compassion is something that has been difficult for you. Because that was definitely true for me. In fact, in my own experience, the first obstacle that I came up against was being completely clueless that compassion even existed. But I was fortunate because the first 10-day retreat that I sat was taught by teachers who did put an equal emphasis on wisdom and compassion. But on that first retreat with them, I literally didn't even hear the word compassion. And it was only when I went back for a second retreat with the same teachers that I heard them talking about compassion over and over and over again. And on that second retreat, this was a complete revelation. It felt as if I'd been hit over the head with a sledgehammer. There was something cracked open. And I realized that compassion had been missing most of my life. It was mostly absent in the family that I grew up in, most of the communities that I spent time in, and for the most part in my friends before I got involved in Dharma. But on this second retreat, I finally recognized what had been so painfully absent for all of those years. And I was so excited about this discovery that I went to the teachers to thank them for their radical new approach. (laughs) Maybe you can guess that they just laughed and said it was exactly the same as the previous retreat. And it literally was because these particular teachers teach word for word the same retreat every time. And they have a book with all of the talks in it. So they were able to show me that compassion had been there in every single talk. And I just didn't hear it. It was like my heart and mind at that point didn't have the receptors to even take in the word. But then after that second retreat, I was a little bit sort of born again and I got really fascinated by compassion. And I was really motivated to do what I could to meet my own and other people's suffering with kindness 
rather than resistance. So I just share that story as an example in case any of you are finding compassion practice difficult. So there's one aspect of compassion practice that is perhaps even more challenging, and that's self-compassion. And again, this was true for me. It took quite a while before I could turn that kindness towards my own pain. And I also see this a lot in the students that I work with. Often when they bring up some kind of intense pain or challenge or difficulty, and I gently suggest the possibility of self-compassion as a practice, generally their first reaction is not one of enthusiasm. And in fact, just the idea of self-compassion can bring up difficult reactions for some people. Perhaps because self-criticism and self-aversion, even self-loathing, seem to be so widespread these days. We need to have a great deal of patience for ourselves, be willing to take it slowly if we are finding it challenging to move into this new and unfamiliar terrain. So just to normalize how challenging it can be, a few years ago I read a short paper by Paul Gilbert, who is a psychologist working in the field of self-compassion. And he described the challenges that many people face when they first start to try to develop warmth and kindness towards themselves. He says, commonly for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, the beginnings of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent, or not deserved. And this usually indicates a fear of developing or experiencing self-compassion. Exploration might reveal that the individual is afraid that if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant, or unlovable. And some think that they will be punished for self-compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So you might recognize then that the work of cultivating self-compassion includes learning how to relate very patiently to some of our deepest psychological conditioning. Because the resistance to turning our attention towards our own pain and trying to meet it with kindness can be intense. So I sometimes share the example of a student I worked with who had some fairly serious resistance to self-compassion. And when we were exploring it, I asked them, about the challenges, and they said that they couldn't find any phrases for self-compassion that felt true and authentic for them. So we played around together and tried out some different phrases to see if we could find some that felt authentic. And the phrases that we came up with sounded something like this. May I be willing, at some point in the future to move towards the idea of the possibility of offering something in the terrain of compassion <laughs> towards myself. 
And it's, you know, we were amused, but it was authentic. And the person agreed that they would try and say that phrase three times every day when they first woke up. And it was a starting point, planted seeds. So we can be creative with the phrases that we use or don't use because we don't have to use phrases. At times, just stopping when we recognize some kind of pain and perhaps just placing a hand on the heart, just that can offer a moment of relief or taking a moment just to pause, to breathe in, to breathe out with what's difficult. That can help soothe the nervous system. So often then, when we first try to develop compassion, what we come into contact with are all the obstacles to it. But if we can approach these in the right way, then they become vehicles rather than obstacles. And in line with that, there's a training slogan that's been helpful in my own practice that I first heard from Eugene Cash. And it says, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. And that simple statement has been so helpful in my own practice for illuminating all of those areas of resistance. For example, that unconscious wanting to, if I can just get rid of this painful emotion, if I can just get beyond that nasty habit that I loathe about myself, or if I can just transcend that terrible relationship breakup, then I'll be able to meditate. But if I remind myself, if it's in the way, it is the way, then grudgingly I have to acknowledge the only way out is through. And usually I can come up with a bit more motivation to try to relate to those painful situations more kindly rather than trying to ignore, deny, resist them. And just to acknowledge, perhaps particularly with compassion, resistance is very common because of its close connection with pain. Resistance is a form of fear. And to some extent, fear is a natural response to pain. We're partly hardwired to avoid experiences that hurt and are potentially life-threatening. So it's not surprising that we might have a deep and instinctual fear of moving towards difficulty instead of away from it. And there is a caveat here, remembering that there are two wings to awakening. Compassion always needs to be supported by wisdom. So we need to cultivate clear seeing, cultivate insight to understand when our fear might be just a knee-jerk reaction and when it might be a more wise fear that's keeping us out of some kind of harm. And so with practice and perhaps some degree of trial and error, we learn to distinguish between genuine compassion and what's sometimes called foolish compassion. So this might be when we get caught in unhelpful patterns of trying to help everyone with everything all the time, which of course is harmful to us, but also potentially harmful for the people we're trying to help, 
because it can keep us stuck in a pattern of enabling or codependence. So we need wisdom to help us know when to say no and when to say yes. And just to be clear that the point of this wisdom is not to make us immune from suffering. Paradoxically, in some ways, it's to make us more vulnerable to it. Because unless we can open to the 10,000 sorrows of life, we won't be able to open to the 10,000 joys either. So there's quite a lot of social science and neuroscience research these days that finds that people who are happy and resilient have the capacity to take in the full spectrum of life. So part of the training in compassion is learning how to expand the range of life experiences that we can open to, but also recognizing and honoring those times when it is appropriate to close the heart and to stay safe. So this process, in some ways, is a process of befriending, of listening, And exactly as we've been doing in the relational practices in the afternoons, we're tuning in, we're attuning equally to our own and to others' experience with as much presence as possible. And then later in the Buddhist tradition, this link between listening and compassion became embodied in the image of Kuan Yin, As many of you know, she is the archetypal embodiment of compassion in the Mahayana tradition. And Kuan Yin is sometimes known as she who hears the cries of the world. And in the Zen tradition, it's said that she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body, which is quite a striking image. Can we imagine listening as if we had ears on every cell of our body. And this image of or metaphor of listening requires us to settle back and to receive, to respond rather than to react. And this receptivity is not just passive, because out of that deep listening, we know the appropriate response. And as some of you know, in some of the images of Kuan Yin, she's shown sitting in a particular posture. You might know it, she's sitting something like this. So in that image, one half of her body is in meditation, and the other half is poised and ready to spring into action. So there's this balance between receptivity and activity. And she's simultaneously attuned to her own inner world and to what's going on out there. And there's just that sense of natural responsiveness. And in my own Brahma-Vihara practice, there was a significant turning point that came when I finally realized that none of these Brahma-Vihara practices are about trying to manufacture or conjure up some kind of emotional response. It's more about listening to what's already there underneath 
all of those strategies and defenses and obscurations. So we can tune in and listen to what are actually the natural states of the heart and mind when they're unobscured by these visiting afflictive thoughts and emotions. So the deep listening that Kuan Yin evokes includes deep listening to our own pain equally with everyone else's. So I've come to think of self-compassion as almost a universal solvent that can dissolve all difficult mind states. So when painful emotions do come up, if we can turn towards them with care, with acceptance, maybe even appreciation for what they can teach us, the pain of them lessens and we strengthen both wisdom and compassion in the process. As our capacity to stay with life's difficulties grows, the more clearly we see that they're impermanent and they're impersonal. We don't take our problems so personally anymore, and because of that, they tend to release more quickly. So there is a way we can sort of help that move along towards seeing the universality of suffering, by consciously at times bringing to mind other beings who might be experiencing pain similar to ours. And this can help take us out of the self-centeredness that can come so quickly when we do get identified with our own difficulties. So I'd like to share an example of this from my own life. From, a, again, a time when I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge and Apologies in advance, it's not a very elegant example. In fact, it's a bit gross. But hopefully it illustrates the, the practice. So at that time I'd been doing, I'd been experiencing a chronic health condition. And I was prescribed a course of three very strong antibiotics to deal with it. And I was told that they could create some intense nausea, but Usually I don't get sick on boats or travel sick or anything, so I thought, I'll be okay. But from the very first day of taking them, from the minute I woke up in the morning until I went back to bed at night, I just felt like I was on the verge of throwing up. And a few times I did actually vomit. And over the course of the next few days, I was trying to meditate with all of this. But pretty much all that was on my mind was, when am I going to throw up again? And where is the nearest bathroom? Or is that a bucket? So my world got very small. And it just felt to be me and my stomach. And that was about it. Eventually, that self-centeredness I recognized and I started to feel the claustrophobia of it. But even the idea of offering self-compassion felt like in some way it was maintaining that small focus, self-focus. So to try and open it up, I decided to think of other people around the world who might also be experiencing nausea at that same time. So I started thinking of all the pregnant women who might be going through morning sickness. And I started thinking of all the sailors out at sea who were caught in storms, and all the people who were going through chemotherapy and not able to eat, and even all the people with hangovers who were telling themselves, <laughs> never again, 
And I just visualized all these people all over the world retching together in unison. (laughs) And surprisingly, alongside the compassion, I felt some real lightness, even happiness, that sense of solidarity. So this is just one small, and as I said, not very elegant example of how wisdom and compassion can support each other. Because when I could connect with the truth that my pain wasn't mine alone, and that many others around the world were also probably suffering, it helped me understand the truth that nothing is personal, and I'm not in control. And with this wisdom, there was a new sense of lightness and openness, and there was almost literally more room in the heart and mind for compassion to grow. So cultivating the Brahma-viharas acts as a protection for our hearts and minds. It makes them more resilient and less vulnerable to those visiting afflictive emotions. And in the same way, when we're free from those afflictive states, we have a much greater capacity to see clearly. And in this way, the practice progresses and wisdom and compassion become inseparable. Our capacity to act for the welfare of others as well as ourselves grows exponentially. So that's the direction that all of this is flowing towards. May our efforts here on this retreat help support the development of those two wings of wisdom and compassion for the benefit of all beings everywhere. May we know peace. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.